The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week we'll hear from Martin Vanderweer on the crash of crypto, Laurie Graham on the difficulties of downsizing, and Michael Mosbacher on the history of the fur industry. First up, Martin Vanderweer. Crypto crash explained. What goes up must come down. Market turmoil looks set as the theme of the week. So let's take a close look at a trading arena more prone to mayhem than most. Why has Bitcoin lost half its value since November? First, I could make a case that since crypto investment has become at least a small part of many mainstream portfolios, its prices tend to respond to the same signals that influence conventional share indices, rather than following fantasy flight paths of their own. So just as FTSE and NASDAQ investors are seriously rattled by the prospect of war in Ukraine on top of existing fears about interest rate rises and tighter money, so crypto fans are also naturally nervous. And when tech fanciers are losing money on stocks such as Netflix and Peloton, the maker of digitally connected exercise bikes, which led a sell-off of former lockdown winners at the end of last week. So Bitcoin holders, likely in many cases to be the very same people, are cashing out too. That applies especially to the sort of higher-risk punters who face margin calls when their bets turn bad. Added to all this, I could point out that Bitcoin trading and mining, which consumes insane quantities of electricity to power the computers that generate new Bitcoin units, is already banned in China. That Russia looks likely to follow suit soon, and that President Erdogan of Turkey, whose citizens have gone crazy for crypto, says his government is at war with the whole concept. Only our old friend President Nayib Bukele of El Salvador is swimming the other way. Having recently declared Bitcoin to be legal tender, he invested another $15 million of state funds last week as the price continued to plunge. His impoverished country is now well underwater on its purchases, reports Forex Live. So, factors special to crypto world have coincided with real-world market trends all pointing downwards. But the fundamental answer to my opening query is much simpler. What goes up must come down, especially when the thing in question has no intrinsic value whatever. You can't melt Bitcoin to make jewellery or carry it in your pocket across borders. No central bank promises to pay its bearer anything at all. It's a virtual gambling chip, nothing more. If you made a modest crypto bet with spare cash last year, doubled your stake, sold near the top 
and bought a top-of-the-range peloton, I salute you. If you went larger and hung on, and now you're wondering where half your life savings have gone, I'm unsympathetic. Old-fashioned gold is still a lot safer as a haven from troubled times, by the way. That was Martin Vanderweer. Next, it's Laurie Graham. So I'm perched on the bed, reading an old Mothering Sunday card. It's just one item in a box of miscellanea that I must sort and prune, and I really can't afford the time to linger. That box contains a fraction of what I have to deal with before I move house, and I need to crack on. But I'm sweating the small stuff. I'm sure I'm not alone in this. One of the legacies of lockdown has been a longing for more space. Across the UK, families with children are falling over themselves to find bigger places. It's a downsizer's market right now for those of us who feel ready to let go and to set about the sorting and binning of things. It's good for us, they say. It's liberating, they say. My home-moving history is not an unusual one, from student digs and a tiny cottage for two, through houses big enough to accommodate four children, and eventually visiting grandchildren. Then, gently downward, gradually shedding the consequences of having a husband who could leave no flea market unexplored. And a two-bed flat, and now, fittingly, to 400 square feet of almshouse living. For we brought nothing into the world. Some downsizing has felt easy. I've jettisoned furniture without hesitation. I own no heirlooms, and I've been relieved to say goodbye to chairs that turned out to be uncomfortable mistakes. Lockdown was a complication. My local charity shop was closed, and when it was reopened, so overwhelmed with donations that it couldn't take any more. Not even seven good-as-new pashminas, which I could never wear because they made me look like a fringed table lamp. Into the bin. No regret. What has sapped my time and resolve are the little things, the contents of cupboards and drawers that tell a story, albeit one I don't necessarily wish to hear. In the twelve years since I bought certain over-ambitious piano scores, a grandson has been conceived and born and sailed through associated board grade two. Those yellowing pages are a reproach to me. Daily practice? Huh. At least I now know who to give them to, even if that means letting go of a fantasy version of myself. A version who can read bass clef without moving her lips. The kilner jars were another matter. I have an irrational love of kilner jars and respectable form as a pickler and preserver, but in my tiny new kitchen, there'll be no room for anything so ambitious. A friend rode to my rescue and took my lovely shiny jars off my hands. Better still, she very kindly sent me photos of them, filled with good things. They'd gone to a deserving home. That thought bolstered me to tackle a grimmer challenge. The drawer of doom. Every home has one, usually in the kitchen. It's the resting place of the superfluous, the dog-eared, 
and the frankly inexplicable. Exhibit A was an Allen key, carefully wrapped but unlabeled. I know for a fact that over the past 20 years, this key has moved with me from England to Italy and then to Ireland. Now I'm coming home to England, should it travel with me? If I toss it, will the day dawn when I say, damn, so that's what it was for? Will my heirs search for it in vain? I kept it. Next up was the nameless gadget that enables me to balance my one-cup espresso maker on any hob in any country. It's proved its worth over the years, but why do I own five of them? And why does it feel rash to keep only one? Likewise, the plastic doohickeys that help preserve the fizz in an opened bottle. Should I keep two? Three? I found myself paralysed by the least consequential of decisions. This brings me, regretfully, to my inventory of screwdrivers, some of which had migrated from the toolbox, nested among the old takeaway menus in the back of the drawer of doom, and bread. I laid them out like surgical instruments. Seventeen screwdrivers. This would seem to indicate that I have a screw loose, and without any excuse for it. Also, one of them had been used to stir paint. I retained two slot heads and two Phillips heads, and dumped the rest with never a backward glance. Intoxicated by this sudden rush of resoluteness, I pressed on. A pack of perished rubber bands, assorted sizes, out. A ditto, a box of staples for a stapler I no longer own. Two pairs of nutcrackers, both useless against the might of a Brazil shell, out, out. A box of piping bags, bought during a short-lived fever of cake decorating and never actually opened. Out, obviously. But there's always something that makes me falter. This time, it was the tube of silver sugar stars. So pretty. And perhaps one day... See? Small stuff again. Old greetings cards may have detained me and unidentifiable cables and grommets may have baffled me, but it was those projects that had died a morning that caused the most sobering moments of self-reckoning. There was fabric I have hauled around the world on the unlikely premise that I would one day turn it into curtains, and those little wooden ladybirds I was going to fix to something for a grandchild. Well, he's in his third year at university now, so the ladybird moment has likely passed. The empty sketchbooks and unused exacto knives. The broken brooch I might stitch to a hat, but let's face it, probably won't. And what possible reason can I have for owning two glue guns? The pressing need to downsize has caused me some uncomfortable moments, faced with a lifetime's accumulation of stuff. All those madcap enthusiasms and five-minute wonders. Mirror, mirror on the wall, will I ever again use a larding needle? No. Sooner or later, the need for the big clear-out comes to us all, 
though I suppose some don't get round to it, and then the burden falls on others. And there's a thankless task. I may have dithered, but I can at least say this. I emptied the drawer of doom. That was Laurie Graham. And finally, Michael Mosbacher. We in Britain have long been much more squeamish about fur than other Europeans. I still well remember the snide comments I would get even in the 1980s, when my German mother would collect me from my London school in the fur coats she insisted on wearing. The ocelot number especially raised eyebrows. The UK's domestic retail market for fur has always been small. Britain's half-dozen fur farms were closed when Tony Blair's government legislated to ban them in 2000. As it was, British manufacturing could never compete with Italy on quality, or with Hong Kong, and then China itself on price. But the wholesale trade has been a very different matter. For much of the second half of the 20th century, Garlic Hill in the City of London was the global centre for the fur wholesale trade. Around half of the world's skins went through London. Fur was traditionally a Jewish industry, and until the 1930s, Leipzig in Germany was the global centre of the trade, with fur traders moving there to escape the anti-Semitism of the Russian Empire. In the late 1930s, fur trading families moved from Germany to London and New York. Traders bought raw skins at auction, dressed and dyed them, and then sold them on to those manufacturing fur coats around the world. By the late 1980s, the number of fur traders in London had declined to around 30. In the 1990s, they moved to an anonymous, secure office block in Archway to hide from the animal rights militants. The British wholesale trade is now in steep, probably terminal decline. The government's Animals Abroad Bill, which will soon ban the fur trade, alongside the importation of foie gras, shark fin and hunting trophies, may well kill it off completely. So what is left of the UK fur trade? Yves Salomon, still a family-owned furrier, initially set up in France in the 1920s by a Jewish emigre from Russia, is the largest player. It sells its coats in Harrods and Harvey Nichols. Harrods even has a separate concession for children, Yves Salomon Enfant, a bluey-grey number speckled with white clouds, retails for £1,075. Until the pandemic, Harrods was one of the largest European retailers of fur in terms of the value of goods sold. Most customers, however, are not British. Foreign visitors come to London, buy a fur coat manufactured in France or Italy, and then take it out of the country again. The fur trade is not about to stop, despite the government's best efforts. It will merely move on to other European cities, as it always does. That was Michael Mosbacher. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week. 